It was December, and the weather was cooling. It was cooling rather more dramatically than I had expected. An unpleasant, damp chill was beginning to get in everywhere, something I didn't expect here in the usually humid lower reaches of the Yangtze River Delta, in the east of China. At school, the class windows were shut to the outside and the air conditioning units were being switched to heating mode. The young female teachers were trading their dresses and heels for long, thick black coats. The students were getting kitted out in lengthy bomber jackets, all sporting the school's logo. I had travelled to China light and had no warm clothing. The Chinese teachers would tell me to get warmer clothes and I would reply that I was wearing six t-shirts. No wonder I had the torso of an Olympic weightlifter. My friend Jess, who arrived a few episodes ago, had finally settled in. She had been to Hong Kong to collect her visa, lost her bank card, and had already dropped her phone in the toilet twice. I didn't have the same kind of habits as Jess, but one problem I did have with my phone was the number of strangers calling me. Chinese phone companies sell your number to anyone who asks, and they phone you at any hour and try to sell you things. Even if I did want a bottle of baijiu, or a set of mahjong tiles, or a brand new house in the gated community near Shanghu Lake, I couldn't understand the caller anyway, such was my Mandarin. I had another little gadget on which I had WeChat, China's most popular social networking app. Random people would add me as a friend, and they tried to sell me beauty products. Sometimes, they'd put in extra effort and tried to convince me in English that I needed to look younger with the help of a facial mask. The women would have their own personal pages full of photos selling whatever they specialised in. Shoes, handbags, lipstick, whatever. Sometimes I would see one of those women, in pretty surroundings like a small meadow-like clump of weeds beside the highway, snapping themselves with some body lotion bottle or a sanitary towel. It always looked to me like an excuse to take more selfies. As social life has made its inexorable move towards the internet, much of life has started to take place through WeChat. You can use the app like a credit card or connect other apps to it, like Mobike's Bike Share app. You can read articles on it, call taxis, conduct business, follow companies' blogs, meet nearby people and cheat on your spouse, and parade your fantastic life on their moments, WeChat's version of the Facebook wall. Your spending and social habits are stored forever, collected and collated, making WeChat the prime repository for data in China. This, in turn, is used for technological innovation. China has surpassed the USA in the field of artificial intelligence, because AI, obviously, gets smarter with data. One example is ByteDance, a media company with no human editors at all. It simply knows what you want to watch. But that is at the lower end of the creepy scale when it comes to China and technology. China's social credit system is gradually coming online. It rates citizens on their trustworthiness and penalises them accordingly. There seems to be a fair number of misunderstandings about this system, about how standardised it is across the country, about how algorithmic it is in the way its punishments are enforced. Spring, who argued with me uh, in the episode after episode 18, uh, an episode called This Society, It Works, and the next one called It's Not About the Truth, well, she was confused when I mentioned this social credit system to her, saying that it's just a financial blacklist system, no different to what we have in the West for when banks are judging people and whether they can borrow money or not. But there are a lot of articles and uh, YouTube videos about this system in the West. There's certainly something going on over there. Another of my contacts in Shanghai was able to confirm, through a connection who works in local government in the province of Zhejiang, that yes, indeed, such a system exists, but it's private. People generally don't know about it and not able to see their rating. 
She told me that people are penalised for things like eating on the subway, playing music loudly at night, running a red light, not sorting garbage correctly, using fake ID documents, booking a hotel but not checking in, or booking a restaurant and not showing up, things like that. On the other hand, donating blood, donating organs, doing social volunteering and other nice things, those things can bring up your score. Good citizens will get green channels for making appointments, better promotion opportunities, discounts and things. Bad citizens lose educational, travel and health opportunities, and really bad ones get blacklisted for five years. Companies are required to comply with the withdrawal of services from these prescribed individuals, but neither they nor the people themselves know what the information is behind the scenes that led to the judgment. It's just, according to this government source, a kind of mysterious hand of denial that swoops in and stops you doing stuff you need to do. Like I say, there seems to be some misunderstandings about the scheme in the West, so I'm a little cautious about stating these claims too strongly. While I've heard it described like an incentive scheme where people can see their scores on an app and compete with each other to gain approval by the state and all the perks that that could bring, my experience is that people don't know about it. And my contact says regular people are not even supposed to know about it. Which of course wouldn't make it a very good incentivization scheme. I mean, how can you improve something when you don't know where you're going wrong? and how you're supposed to get it right. Anyway, some form of Pavlovian mass experiment is being undertaken on the 1.4 billion people that reside in China, and in the end, it's intended to prevent even the slightest deviation from acceptable behaviour. WeChat's parent company, Tencent, among others, has been involved since the beginning, which is of course important because anything that anyone wants to say negative about the government is probably going to go on WeChat. So cooperation with this huge tech company is an absolute must where the government is concerned. WeChat is also the primary domain for national fads to circulate. In this period before Christmas while I was there, a man from Nanyang drank three litres of Baijiu, a clear spirit of up to 60% alcohol. In terms of taste, Baijiu ranks pretty low, by my reckoning. It's a bit like thick, oily vodka and really brings that special kick to your Christmas office party. Of course, once the man downing three litres of the stuff went viral, people couldn't just be expected to sit back and admire. No, they rose to the challenge. But generally didn't stay standing for long. Our school's principal, a man who we'd briefly met at the first meeting, well, he would balk at the weakness of the man from Nanyang. At the Christmas party, there he was, doing the rounds, toasting each other individually with a large shot of Baijiu, slowly reddening, I was sat beside a teacher from the kindergarten, Heather, who was from Wales but had become rather the home county specimen, presumably having been raised by the Queen herself. She looked at the spinning table of morsels in front of us with a mixture of curiosity and disgust. Is that a fish's head? she asked me. I had a look and determined the question to be rhetorical. The trajectory suggested that this fish was swimming upwards from below the table and had burst through. It gawped in the open air, peering out at us in surprise, decorated with sprinkles of spring onion. Heather lowered her voice and told me that she's only here in Changshu because her fiancé-to-be is working at the local Jaguar Land Rover plant. Teaching was the easiest way for her to get the visa, she said, but she much preferred to be on a beach somewhere or back home. Let me put it this way, she said. My mother would be appalled. I suggested she talk to Kelly. I saw a kindred spirit. The school had made good on their promise to give teachers a trip to the supermarket once a week. It was always Saturday morning, and I never went. For Kelly, though, it was a lifeline, and she dragged Ralph along to push the trolley. 
Mark's and Arizona Man's families also went, as they too did a fair amount of cooking at home. They'd all done vast meals for Thanksgiving, and Christmas was next in the diary. For Jess, Penny and me, these festive meals would all take place in the canteen, with the bean sprouts and seaweed soups. It was just too convenient to reject. Jess had signed up to online banking, which didn't work, and she couldn't access either of her email accounts because of technical reasons that are too boring to go into. She presumed she was being paid accurately, but didn't actually know when payday was or how much she should get. If it's more than before, I'm happy, she said. Jess wasn't given a name tag or told about the Monday morning assembly with the National Anthem and Awards ceremonies, so she never went. She didn't plan classes or go to meetings, and decided that now, with free food on the table, was the perfect time to become a vegetarian. It's just better not to want, she told me. Because of the worsening weather, I didn't envy the short commute she took every day from her apartment, and we all but stopped taking the e-bike into the city. All but, but not quite. Extended periods in the cradle of elites can cause a depth of madness from which one might never return. We were thus compelled to get out into the city from time to time, and on these trips, I would drive the e-bike, sheltering Jess from the worst of the weather, as she sat behind me, chatting to herself about the love lives of friends back home, the sexist remarks of the male foreign teachers, and her plan to visit Cuba, Canada, Australia, Germany, and the UK during the coming summer. Did she do it? Place your bets now. Increasingly, on these trips to town, we'd be whipped with horizontal rain chilled by the lake. Drunk on the way back, we'd attempt to stay warm by singing one-hit wonders from the 90s. Our voices would shiver and Jess would do her bit by rubbing my back along with the beat. But it was too cold. I needed a winter coat. One day, Yun came into my classroom to translate something for Qian, my co-teacher. With a jolliness I later realised completely misrepresented the severity of the task, she asked me if I had any fun ideas for a song or a dance that the children could learn. I went away to dwell on this, and after rejecting nursery rhymes and songs from kids' TV shows, I landed on a devilish scheme. I would teach my kids a song from the musical The Book of Mormon. It's written by the creators of South Park and was at that time on stage in London's West End, although I hadn't seen it at that point. I did, however, know the general gist of it, and some songs too. The humour is fairly obscene, and its content is pretty much quite offensive to Mormons. It's full of songs that would be hardly appropriate to introduce to a Chinese adult, let alone 28 Chinese children. It was perfect. But I am not completely irresponsible. The song I chose was called Hello, and it's about Mormon proselytizers spreading the good word of the Lord. I changed the words so that my students would be spreading the good word of English. And it was that song that we, as a class, began to learn to sing. I feel at this point I should say that, to the lawyers of Mr Trey Parker and Mr Matt Stone, my contact details can be found through my publisher, and I look forward to meeting you in court, thanking you both for inspiring my students' performance, and also the hell that ensued over December. Next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you... It is towards darkness that we turn. It's history time and a reckoning with China's relationship with Japan is due. Jess and I head to Nanjing to try to make sense of it all. But there's a lot to cover, so we've got three episodes to look at various things, including the Nationalist Party, or KMT, which ruled China before the Communists got their hands on it, and the Nationalist leader, Sun Yat-sen, whose mausoleum is in Nanjing. Also the one-time most powerful family in China, the Songs, China's most famous traitor, and of course, the notorious 
Rape of Nanjing. The students were getting kitted out in lengthy bomber jackets. Hey, come on, it's podcast time. <laughs>